Many of you have probably uh, heard the story of my going to the uh, Masters Golf Tournament with a friend of mine when I was in college, probably because I've used it as a sermon illustration three or four times. <laughs> I'll spare you all the details here, this short version. So I'm in college. A friend of mine invites me to go with him to the Masters, this uh, golf tournament every spring. I say, of course. So we drive down, we get to the golf course, and at the gate, we're about to walk in, and he hands me a badge, and he says, and the, the badge has his brother's name on it, and he says, put this on, you're, you're my brother today. And it didn't hit me in the moment, but what was soon to become clear was, that the, the re, was the reality that he just invited me into, and that that reality would change everything about the experience I thought I was about to have. Because, you see, I didn't, what I didn't know was that both my friend's father and his grandfather were members of this exclusive club called Augusta National Golf Club, which meant that anyone in the family got the same exclusive access to that tournament the week and that weekend. <laughs> Jamie, I think you gotta go. I don't even know what they said, but you have to leave immediately. What my friend was telling me and giving me that badge was that at least for a day, I was in the family. And so, you know, I was happy to go to this tournament as his friend, more than happy. But what I didn't realize is that I was going as his brother. And this changed literally everything about my life and experience for about 48 hours. We all know that it matters, at least on some level, experientially, opportunity, it matters what family we're in. But what many Christians don't think about nearly often enough is the fact that in Christ, we are in the very family of God. So Jesus is not only our Savior, he's not only our friend, which we contemplated last week, Jesus is our brother. The question is, what significance does this play, should this play in our lives? So what I want to do this, this morning is think really carefully about this in the short series that we're doing on on who Jesus is and what impact it makes on our lives, I want us to think really carefully about a couple things. One, how we got into this family of God. Spend about the first half doing that. And then secondly, what this means for us or the benefits of being in this family. So we'll be all over the place this morning. We're going to give you about 25 verses. You don't have to look those up. The slide people have already worked out and stretched this morning. They're ready to go. So uh, there'll be a couple points I may ask you to turn to some pages, but for the most part, follow that outline that's uh, in, your, in your bulletin, and, uh, and hopefully it will be helpful for us this morning. So how did we get into this family? We, t- we speak often about the family of God, being in the family of God, but how did that happen? I think it's worth slowing down to contemplate just a little bit. So to understand Jesus as our brother, we first have to understand Jesus as the Son, So the first point there on your handout is that God has one eternal son, one eternal son, which is to say that God is a father. So as we start out, I want to take another look at some of those verses that we read earlier, Will read just a few minutes ago. So John 1, just a few of these verses. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. John starts off this poetic gospel by telling us of an eternal divine word. This word who was with God and who was himself God in eternity past. And who is this word? He goes on in verse 14. Look there. And the word, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only what? Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. The eternal word is the eternal son. Who in these last days, John said, he took on human existence. He dwelt among his people. This is Jesus Christ. And just in case we have any lingering doubts about this, Jesus himself testifies to this, his eternal sonship later on in this same gospel account. So as he's looking to the final scene of his earthly ministry, Jesus prays to his heavenly father. Let's just listen in. We read this last week. Let's just listen in a couple verses. John 17. Jesus prays. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory, listen, that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because, listen, you loved me before the foundation of the world. The God of the Bible has existed always eternally in a relationship of love. That's what John is kind of giving us a peek into. Father, Son, and Spirit. This is, this is, by the way, how we can say that God is love because he exists in relationship, loving relationship. All this to say, at the very heart of the being of God is a father loving his son. God is the eternal father of an eternal son. God did not at some point in history, become a father. God is a father. Remember when Jesus shows up on the scene? He's baptized. He comes up out of the water. And what, is, what voice comes from heaven? Behold, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There was never a time when God was not a father to the son. Nor was there a time when the son wasn't a son to the father, even before the incarnation. What this means, just maybe something many of us haven't thought much about, is that fatherhood is an essential character of what it means to be God. The one true God is a father. All his ways are fatherly. So that's point one that I think we can build on. God is the eternal father of one eternal son. Point two, this father then has two eternal purposes. This father has two eternal purposes. You know, there are times when all of us wonder just what the Lord is up to in this world, don't we? All the time, maybe daily. After all, it sure seems like there are a lot of details happening in our lives, happening on the pages of scripture. Is there a way to distill this down into a few points we can all rally around to understand what exactly the Lord's doing in the world? It seems that there are. There are a few places in Scripture that seem to really get to the heart of what the Father is doing in the world. 
And what do we see to be the eternal purposes at the heart of the Father? Number one, I think one of these eternal purposes is more glory for the Son. The Father wants more glory for his eternal Son. Listen to a couple of verses in Colossians, chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. And he, that is Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There's way more here than we can kind of unpack this morning. But for our purposes, just notice, the Father, the Father loves to see the Son full of his glory. The Father loves the Son, and the Father wants to see the Son exalted, preeminent above all things, in all things, through all things. That's one heartbeat of the Father. More glory for the Son. He wants He wants the Son to be seen as he is. That's one purpose of the Father. But notice there's a second heartbeat, a second eternal purpose of the Father. Let her be there. And that is more children for the Father. More glory for the Son, more children for the Father. That is, at the heart of the Father's love for the world is a desire to have a family, so to speak. So a father, by designation, is one who who gives life, who begets children. So even before the foundation of the world, before the first word is spoken at creation, what is on the father's heart and mind? I think this is what Paul is speaking to in Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to a few verses there. Ephesians 1, 3. He's kind of giving us this opening doxology in this letter. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. All right, so just pause there for a second. What is on the Father's heart in eternity past? You see how he's using all this language before the foundation of the world? Well, it's the blessing of more children alongside the Son. You see that? And what does this look like? He goes on. Look at verse 4 and 5. In love, Paul says, in love, he predestined us for what? For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. All right, so think about it. What is on the heart of this eternal, loving Father God? What's his purpose? Even in eternity past. Paul says, adoption. The goal of the gospel is more children for the father, more brothers and sisters for the son. We read this verse with Will just a few minutes ago, didn't we? John 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, that is the son come in the flesh from heaven, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This this is the very heart of the God of the Bible. Just consider the love of God for the world that he's made. On his eternal loving heart is a desire, is the purpose to give more and more people the great blessing of adoption, of belonging to him as his children. This is really, really good news. Hopefully it's providing a helpful 
trajectory for us, foundation for us, but there is a problem to all this, and this is the third point. People have one big problem. People have one big problem. What's the problem? People don't actually want a father. You know, it's not uncommon to hear people refer to all of humanity as God's children. The idea that we all have kind of a familial relationship with some higher power just by virtue of existing. It is true that everything, every person belongs to God as his creation. But that's not exactly the same thing as having him as father, is it? So the only thing we get by virtue of natural birth is a, is a nature that very much does not want to be tied down by any kind of higher power, much less the authority of a father. Listen to the way Paul describes unbelieving hearts later on in the book of Colossians. Colossians 4, verse 18. They, I don't think that's right. Colossians, just listen. Colossians 4, verse 18. They, he says, speaking to those without Christ, he says, they are darkened in their understanding. Alienated, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. He goes on in this passage. We can look at other passages. The point is, in a fallen world, we people are not born into a familial relationship with God. We are not naturally God's children. We do not even want a heavenly father. Our hearts are hard, Paul says, callous, which means we are separated from the life of God. Which means, if God wants children, well, he has to come get them. He has to make them. Again, this is number four, and that is the father has a plan. The father has a plan. Summing up the plan, the father Listen to this. The father will send the one son down to bring more children up. That's the plan. The plan is, son, go get your brothers and sisters. That's the gospel. The father has a very distinct goal, as we talked about earlier. If you want to, you can turn to this passage, Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to spend just a couple more minutes here. Hebrews 2, that's in the way back. One, page 1002, if you're using the blue Bible under the chair in front of you. Hebrews 2, we'll start in verse 10. The author says this, listen. Verse 10, For it was fitting, he says, that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. All right, so pause right there. What's the father's goal? One way we can conceive of it, the author of Hebrews says, is that the goal is to bring many sons to glory, to reach down into this fallen world, the kingdom of darkness full of fatherless spiritual orphans, and pull out many sons and daughters and bring them back up to himself in glory, to a kingdom of light. But how would he do this? How would the father bring up many sons to glory? How could this possibly happen? The answer is by sending the one son down into suffering. He wants to bring people up into glory. He must send the one son down into suffering. I think this is what he's saying there. Let's read verse 10 again and we'll keep going. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory 
should make the founder of their salvation, that is Jesus, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, then he quotes some Old Testament passages here, I'll tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14. Since, therefore, the children, us, share in flesh and blood, what did the son do? He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2, you see right there at the end, Hebrews 2 is full of priestly language. So the priests under the old covenant, they were the ones chosen to represent their brothers in bringing to the Lord sacrifice for sins. So they were to approach a holy God, in one sense, being holy themselves, set apart, but they also had to be legitimate representatives of a sinful people. So they had to be both holy and they had to be perfectly representative. So in this light, there was very specific prescriptions on what the priests had to wear, how they had to adorn themselves. They had to be pure without sin, had to be consecrated, and they had to be, the one, had to be like the ones for whom they brought a sacrifice. So in this light, the priests would consecrate or, or be consecrated, be made perfect through ritual cleansing on the one hand. And on the other hand, they would put on a priestly garb, which included different elements by which would kind of represent their representation of the people, the 12 tribes of Israel in their case, their brothers. All right, so the author of Hebrews takes this idea and he teaches us that under the new covenant, we have a high priest who brings a new sacrifice for sins. And this priest, too, if he's to be legit, he must be both holy and a perfectly legitimate representative of the people on whose behalf he's seeking to make atonement. Who is this new priest that's going to represent us so perfectly? Not anybody from among us, but... He says, one from outside of us, one from above us. One who would have to make himself like us in every way except sin. The new priest is the, it's the son of God. And this holy son, Hebrews says, he left the eternal glory of the father and he got dressed, so to speak. He, he put on the attire of his soon-to-be brothers. And what was that attire? Flesh and blood. Listen to verse 17 again. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The, the eternal Son of God became man 
in order that men might become sons of God. Do you see that? We all know the experience of, of seeing someone that we've never met, and yet we know right away they just have to be the brother or sister of this person that we already know. It's a bit what's going on in the incarnation. Jesus is making sure that the likeness is indistinguishable. Who has Jesus come to represent, to bring to God? That's whose dress he would put on, whose clothes he would put on. And whose is that? It's ours. And the author of Hebrews says he is not ashamed to do it. <laughs> he should be ashamed. He's not. He's not ashamed, he says, to call you brothers. Once appropriately dressed for the priestly work on behalf of his brothers and sisters, the founder of our faith, Hebrews says, he subjected himself <laughs> just to the torturous experience of life in the world. Verse 14, he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So in this plan, the Father made sure that there would be no aspect of the human experience that the Son of God, that Jesus, wouldn't share with his brothers and sisters. And so through these trials and temptations, which he endured perfectly and without sin, what was happening is that the Father was perfectly consecrating or qualifying the son, setting him apart for the role that no one else could carry out. That is to be a perfectly representative, the perfectly sin sinless high priest who could bring more and more brothers and sisters to God. So remember, remember the father's two purposes in eternity past, more glory for the son, more children for himself. And Hebrews says, well, here you have it in a way that we would never have imagined it. The son gets the glory as he lays his life down as a sacrifice. The children get reconciliation to the father. Mike Reeves says it this way. He says, God the son came from his father, became one of us, died our death, in all to bring us back with him to be before his father like the jewels on the heart of the high priest. And all this brings us to one final point of this first page, and that is the Son brings many sons with him back to glory. The Son brings many more sons with him back to glory. Jesus, our big brother, he died for our sins, but that's not all, amazingly. You see, you see dying gave the Son the opportunity to do something that he couldn't have done before he died, which is what? To be born again. And in his resurrection from the dead, the Bible says Jesus became the firstborn from the dead. The first in a line of many new brothers and sisters who, though dead in sin, can come alive through faith in him. You see, we're not God's children through birth. We're God's children through rebirth. Jesus, the eternal son, he's come to earth to share with us what's his. What's always been his. What is that? Sonship. The God who is the eternal father to his eternal son is now the father of many multitudes of children through the work of the one son. God has made children for his child and they call him, we call him brother. 
Galatians 3.26, Paul says, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. 1 John 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The question is, do you have Christ as your brother? That's the way to God, is having Christ as your brother. Do you confess that he has come and made himself as you are, flesh and blood? Do you confess that Jesus is the one who willingly put himself through the death that you deserve? Do you believe that by faith that he returned to the Father and that even now, by faith, you dwell with him in the fa- with the Father now? If that's, if that's not you, you know yourself not to be a Christian, I want you to consider it from that standpoint. Do you have Christ as your brother? Are you putting your faith in him, the work that he did? Do you see it as representative for you? Church, what if? Just imagine if God could make a way for the eternal son of God to be our brother. (laughs) That's what he's done. That's the gospel. All right, so that's page one. That's some really, really good news. So, But what I want us to do is spend the rest of our time thinking about implications of this. And there's, there's enough here for weeks and weeks of sermons, so I just want to give you a few things that I think could be helpful for us to think on. So I want to spend a few minutes teasing this out. What experience realities rest on this theological foundation that we've laid? I want, us to, give, I want to give us four things, what this means for us. Number one, because Jesus is our brother, We have sympathetic help from God. So because he's our brother, we have sympathetic help from God. So when I first began high school, I wasn't scared, per se, to go to high school, but I wasn't completely comfortable either. So I was in a new place, new faces, new challenges. The most intimidating challenge was that I had decided that I was going out for the football team. So I was 14. You know, five foot nothing, skinny as a rail. I guess about like I am right now. I'd been working out hard for about nine days. And so I'm there, and I know that I'm going out on the field with guys whose, whose name I read in the paper. I was entirely weak, like in every way, right? Physically, emotionally, all that. How was I going to do this? How, was I, how would I ever meet this challenge? Well, unlike most of the guys trying to manage this new situation, I actually had a secret weapon. I had a big brother. I had someone who looked like me, except he was strong and he was experienced. So when I was a freshman, Tyler, my brother, was a senior, and Tyler was not skinny. And he was not inexperienced. He had been working out For years, he had navigated these waters many times before. He himself had had to try on his own, had to try out on his own when he was weak, when he was inexperienced. So that when that first day of practice came my freshman year, I rolled up to practice and I was nervous and I was scared and I was skinny and I was weak, but I was not alone. In fact, I was in a 1995 Chevy Blazer with a 12-inch subwoofer and enter Sandman blasting with the windows down. 
experienced. He was experienced, I told you. I was weak, but my, my big brother had seen it all before. He had been through it all before, and he was going to help me. The point is, because I had a big brother, I had sympathetic help. Listen to the way the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus. He says, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. If my brother had not played football before, well, he could have tried to help me, but it wouldn't have been the same, would it? So he could talk to me about what it might be like. He could give me some like theoretical pointers, but he couldn't actually sympathize with what I was experiencing, could he? But since he had lived it himself, he knew exactly what I was feeling that first day. And that's exactly what I needed. I think the author of Hebrews is saying that Christian, because Jesus really came in the flesh, because he was really made like us in every respect, because he really lived a real embodied life in this really messed up world, well, because of that, you have a big brother who doesn't merely theorize with you about how bad struggles might be. You have a big brother who sympathizes with you out of his own lived experience in this world. That's what the incarnation did. Listen to it again. Later on in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, when, you, when you're facing struggles, when, it's, when life is really hard and you pray and you should pray and you say, Jesus, this life is just so hard. It's as if Jesus looks at you and says, right? It's so hard. Because he lived it. He knows. Because Jesus is our brother, think about this. God himself has lived life on the earth. So what? So don't ride up to practice alone. I think is the application. Ride, so to speak, with your big brother. Go to him and you'll find a big brother ready to help when you need him. So when you're struggling, when you're facing certain temptations, trials, whatever it is, I wonder, do you conceive of yourself as being completely alone in that time? It would have been so foolish for me to say goodbye to my brother and go to practice on my own when he was going to the same place and he wanted to be with me and he would take me. What difference would it make to pray to Jesus as your brother? To know that he, he experienced the same things that you're struggling with. Jesus came so that he could sympathize with you. So that he could help you by his presence. You should let him. Because Jesus is our brother, we have sympathetic help from God. Not theoretical help. Sympathetic, feeling help. All right, number two. Because Jesus is our brother, we have a heavenly father. What gift would the eternal son of God come down to bring to his brothers and sisters? Well, the gift is a father. That's the gift that he'll give you. You don't have a dad? I'll give you one. 
Listen to his prayer, some more of his prayer in John 17, verse 24 and 25. Father, he says, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. John 17 is worth and worthy of some like serious reflection. It's like Jesus can't wait for us to get to heaven to be with the Father. He loves the Father. He can't wait for us to experience the presence of the Father. And so he comes to bring us into that relationship. The question is, do you live with God as your Father? You know, we often, say, we often say God is our father, which is a great way to say it. But I wonder if you flip it around and say, your father is God. It hits a little differently, doesn't it? You know, there's many places to go to, to get help on thinking through this well. I, I'm just about to give you like a dose of one whole chapter of J.I. Packer, right? So if you're wondering if I came up with any of this, the answer is no. I would commend to you the book Knowing God. There's a book on sons of God in that, talking about us, God being our father. I just want to give you a few thoughts from that as I've kind of distilled them. But it hits me hard because one concern I have pastorally is that many of us have not yet grasped the depth of the reality of having God as our father. All right, so listen. So I think this is important. So I think there are many of us here I think there are many of us here, myself included, who have a high, detailed, nuanced, careful doctrine of justification. That is, we know that Jesus' work on the cross means that we are acquitted from the guilt of our sin. That this is a fact. We know it. There is no condemnation, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are justified. I have been declared righteous. This is what I believe. And that's true. Yet, some of those same of us live almost daily with the lingering sense that although God has acquitted us, he couldn't really like us. And that's because a judge doesn't actually have to like the people that he acquits. He can pronounce a judgment. He can see the heinousness of what happened. He can pronounce a judgment without any feeling. He can set you free, declare you righteous, and be on with his day. And some of us feel like that's exactly what the Lord has done with us. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you that your grasp of the gospel may not be as complete as you think it is. If all you know is justification without adoption, what you know is a legal status, not a relationship. And those are not the same thing. The gospel does not stop with justification. It could have, but it didn't. It goes on to something called adoption. It does not stop at a legal declaration. It goes on to a relationship. The God of the Bible in Christ, he's a judge once in your life. And after that singular act of judgment and acquittal, he is not your judge. He is your father. 
Christian, God, God did not unfeelingly pronounce your sentence. Right? You're acquitted. Stand up and walk out of the courtroom. Right? You saw his back and he walked out. No, he lovingly, he tearfully, authoritatively, he struck the gavel. He sealed your fate and he came off the stand and embraced you and took you home to be with him. The merciful justifier is the loving adopter. Which means many of us have been Christians for a long time, many of us who have been Christians for a long time, years, maybe decades, we need to, maybe even for the first time, in a sense, we need to allow ourselves to step out of God's courtroom and into God's living room. We do not relate to God legally, but familially. J.I. Packer says this. He says, to be right with, the, with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. So if you're here and you're a Christian, but if you're honest, the way you feel is more like that of an orphan. Well, there's something wrong. If it feels like there's no one who sees you or loves you or takes care of you, well, you need to let Jesus introduce you to his Father. You need to let the Savior introduce you to what it means to be a son or a daughter. That's what he came to do. Listen to this good news from Paul in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. There's not a period there. Right? We live in redemption, don't we? We, we live in acquittal. We live in justification. There's not a period here. He came to redeem those who were under the law, praise God, so that we might receive something more. What is it? So that we might receive adoption as sons. Some of us are cutting ourselves off at the, at the knees when it comes to living the Christian life. We have a redeemer, but not a father. And because you are sons, Paul says, God sent his spirit the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, he doesn't just give you the son, he gives you the spirit to convince you that God loves you, that you are his son. You can cry out to him as Father. Jesus came to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. The one eternal son has come to share his father with us. So some of us are living as if we've been forgiven but not adopted. So think about it. How do you relate to God? Packer says that'll tell you a lot about you. That'll tell you all the theology you need to know. How do you relate to God? How do you pray? So when you sit down to pray on your own, it may be that you say something like, Almighty, infinite, unapproachable, holy, just Lord Jehovah, and all that's fine, that's true. It's just not the way Jesus prayed. And it's not the way he instructed us to pray. What if the disciples said, Jesus, teach us to pray? And then he answered them. Well, they did, and he did. What did he say? Pray like this. Our Father, our holy, heavenly Father. 
So think about this. If, if God had forgiven you without also adopting you, would it change anything about the way that you relate to him right now? God is fatherly at heart. He loves being fatherly to us. The question is, do we come to him as children? If Jesus is our brother, then God is our father. It's a good aim to rediscover what it means to be sons and daughters of God, to rest in his love, to pray always and at ease. We do need help with this sometimes. If this is something you're struggling with, I'd, we just come and talk to us, talk to other people, talk to your small group, whoever it is. We do need help. And I think this actually leads us to the third point, which is because Jesus is our brother, we have a whole new family. Because he's our brother, we have a whole new family. So if Jesus, the one eternal son, has died in the place of many multitudes of people, and those people are united by faith to him, well then, Christian, you have a whole new family of brothers and sisters in Christ. We see this all over the New Testament, don't we? So the apostles addressing the church over and over again. They're saying, hey, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, right? And over and over again, what's our... It's kind of the default role that we have towards them. What's well, love? So, you know, let me ask you, why do you love your aunt, like, whoever, right, that lives like 16 states away? The one that you see only at like every three and a half years. Was it because you have like similar hobbies and interests? <laughs> I'm guessing not, right? Is it because she's your favorite person to be around? No. And yet when you visit and when you leave, you tell her, and you actually mean it, you tell her, I, you say, I love you. Why? She's in the family. You're in her family. But why do we love one another here in the church? Is it because we're the same? Is it because we've all got common interests? Is it because we have the same exact convictions on every single social political issue of the day? Why are we to seek to maintain unity with those among us with whom we have almost nothing in common? It's because we have the one thing in common, isn't it? It's because we're a family. And if we have only one thing in common, and that one thing is the fact that Jesus is our brother who laid down his life for us, well, then we're family, and that's actually what we do for one another. Listen to the way John talks about life in the church in 1 John chapter 4. He says, in this is love. He says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God's love, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So I'll just ask, how do you view, how do you view other people in the church? Listen, if Jesus is our brother, not only do we get a new heavenly father, but we get new earthly fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers. So it's worth looking around, isn't it? It's worth looking around and saying, like, is there anyone here who needs a brother? Is there anyone here who looks like they could use a sister or a mother or a father? Or maybe that's you. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, I could use, I could use a mother a spiritual mother. 
This is what we can find here. And does it come naturally? It's okay. We can work at it. We can say, I, I, I actually need that. That's actually what we need to do. If that's you and you need that, like, come to us. Put your hand up. We'll help you find that mother, that father, that brother, that sister. Because Jesus is our brother, we have a whole new family. Finally, because Jesus is our brother, this is a fourth point there, we have a new inheritance. So imagine you get adopted, but not just to any family, but in the, in the wealthiest family you could ever imagine. All of a sudden, your adoption means you not only have a new father and a mother, a new family, but, but you, have a, you have a new security that you never imagined before, too, right? Not only right now is secure, but your entire future is secure. And over and over in the New Testament, they're saying that this is what it means to be adopted by God, who owns everything. So for those who are united to Christ by faith in the family of God, the New Testament makes sure we know, makes sure we know that there is a future change coming. There is a future weight of glory yet to be seen when Christ is fully, publicly exalted as the head, the firstborn of a new creation. Christ our big brother has an inheritance coming to him, prepared by the Father, sealed with his own blood, coming, being prepared right now. And what the New Testament is saying is that if you're with him, you're also an heir. His fate is your fate. His future is your future. Listen to just a couple verses. I wish I could read all of Romans 8, but listen to just a couple verses here. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. To be in the Son means to be a son. To be in the air means to be yourself an heir. You know, you may have noticed that in most of the passages we've hit today and the way we're speaking about it, the Bible speaks of Jesus' siblings as sons. It's a strange absence most, most of the time with the mention of daughters, isn't it? This could be alarming. Maybe you felt it, but I think this is actually really good news. Because think about it. In the New Testament context, in the biblical context, who got the inheritance? The firstborn son. If you were a daughter, well, that was tough luck. But do you see what happens in the gospel? All God's people in Christ are now considered sons. In other words, all of us, men and women, sons and daughters, are bestowed with the honor of being sons of God, heirs with Christ. That's how Paul sums it up in Galatians 4. He says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This world is not going to stay as it is. It is going to be remade. It's going to be restored. And once restored, it will be handed over to whoever's name is on the deed, so to speak. And what the New Testament is saying is that the one whose name is on the deed is the son and the sons of God. We cannot even imagine what awaits us in Christ because of being in his family. Listen to just one more 
set of verses here. It seems that much of what we've been talking about is on John's mind. Listen to 1 John chapter 3. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Yeah, see it. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Listen to this. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we shall see him as he is. The, I think the big point that we're driving home here is that God has gone to great lengths to secure for himself children to be with him forever. It's kind of a lot to take in, but I think it kind of boils down to this, something that we can rehearse every day. So write, write it down. I've been rehearsing these things this week. Write these things down. Put it somewhere where you'll see it. It's the truth that just sums up what we've been talking about. My father is God. My brother is Christ. My family is the church. And my home is heaven. That's what the Lord's done for us in bringing us into the family. Let's just seek to live in that reality. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do pray you would help us by your spirit to know your love that's been poured out to us, a love that would make us all sons and heirs along with Christ. Lord, for any of those of us who are really struggling to live in any of these realities, please help us by your spirit through the word, by conversation with other people, really help us to press into these things and to live in line with what you've done for us in Christ. We love you. We're very grateful for these realities. We cannot wait to see you as you are, that we might finally be like you. In Jesus' name, amen.